Part five of Anything You Can Do by Randall Garrett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part five. St. Louis hadn't been hit during the Holocaust. It still retained much of the old-fashioned flavor of the 19th and 20th centuries, especially in the residential districts. Bart Stanton liked to walk along those quiet streets of an evening just to let the peacefulness seep into him. And, knowing it was rather childish, he still enjoyed the small pleasure of playing hooky from the Neurophysics Institute. Technically, he supposed, he was still a patient there, more now that he had accepted Colonel Mannheim's assignment. He was presumably under military discipline. But he assumed that, if he had asked permission to leave the Institute's grounds, he would have been given that permission without question. But, like playing hooky or stealing watermelon, it was more fun if it was done on the sly. The boy who comes home feeling deliciously wicked and delightfully sinful after staying away from school all day can have his whole day ruined by being told that it was a holiday and that the school had been closed. Bart Stanton didn't want to spoil his fun by asking for permission to leave the grounds when it was so easy for a man, with his special abilities, to get out without asking. Besides, there was a chance, a small one, he thought, that permission might be refused for one reason or another, and Bart was fully aware that he could not disobey a direct request, to say nothing of a direct order, that he stay within the walls of the Institute. He didn't want to run any risk of losing his freedom, small though it was. After five years of mental and physical hell, he felt a need to get out into the world of normal, everyday people. His legs moved smoothly, surely, and unhurriedly, carrying him aimlessly along the resilient walkway, under the warm glow of the street lights. The people around him walked as casually and with seemingly as little purpose as he did. There was none of the brisk sense of urgency that he felt inside the walls of the Institute. He knew he could never get away from that sense of urgency completely, even out here. There were times when it seemed that all he had ever done, all his life, was to train himself for the single purpose of besting the knife. If he wasn't training physically, he was listening to lectures from the psychologists, or from Colonel Mannheim, laying plans and considering possibilities for the one great goal that seemed to be the focal point of his whole life. What would happen if he failed? He would die, of course, and Mannheim's plan Beta would immediately go into effect. The knife would be killed eventually. But what if he stanton won then what the people around him were not part of his world really their thoughts their motions their reactions were slow and clumsy in comparison with his own once the knife had been conquered what purpose would there be in the life of bartholomew stanton he was surrounded by people but he was not one of them he was immersed in a society that was not his own because it was not, could not be, geared to his abilities and potentials. But there was no other society to turn to, either. He was not a man alone afraid in a world he had never made. 
he was a man who had been made for a world a society that did not exist women a wife a family life where with whom he pushed the thoughts from his mind the questions unanswered and perhaps unanswerable in spite of the apparent bleakness of the future he had no desire to die and there was the possibility that too much brooding of that kind would evoke a subconscious reaction that could slow him down or cause a wrong decision at a vital moment a feeling of futility could operate to bring on his death in spite of his conscious determination to win the coming battle with the knipe the knipe was his first duty when that job was finished he could consider the problem of himself just because he could not now see the answer to that problem did not mean that no answer existed he suddenly realized that he was hungry he had been walking through memorial park past the museum an old worn edifice that was still called the missouri pacific building there was a small restaurant only a block away he reached into his pocket and took out the few coins that were there not much but enough to buy a sandwich and a glass of milk because of the trust fund that had been set up when he had started the treatment at the neurophysics institute he was already well off but he didn't have much cash what good was cash in the institute where everything was provided he stopped at a news vendor dropped in a coin and waited for the reproducing mechanism to turn out a fresh paper then he took the folded sheets and went on to the restaurant he rarely read a news sheet mostly his information about the world that existed outside the walls of the institute came from the televised newscasts but occasionally he liked to read the small relatively unimportant little stories about people who had done small relatively unimportant things stories that didn't appear in the headlines or on the newscasts the last important news story had come two nights before when the knipe had robbed an optical products company in miami the camera had shown the shop on the screen whatever had been used to blow open the door of the vault had been more effective than necessary it had taken the whole front door of the shop and both windows too the bent and twisted paraglass that had lain on the pavement showed how much force had been applied from within and yet the results were not that of an explosion it was more as though some tremendous force had pushed outward from within it had not been the shattering shock of high explosive but some great thrust that had unhurriedly yet irresistibly moved everything out of its way nothing had been moved very far as it would have been by a blast it appeared that everything had simply fallen aside as though scattered by a giant hand the main braces of the storefront were still there bent outward a little but not broken the vault door had lain on the floor of the shop only a few feet from the front door the vault itself had been farther back and the camera had showed it standing wide open gaping inside had been pieces of fragile glass standing on the shelves unmoved unharmed the force whatever it had been had moved in one direction only from a point within the vault just a few feet from the door pushing outward to tear out the heavy door as though it had been made of paraffin or modeling clay 
Stanton had recognized the vault construction type, the Voisier construction, which, by test, could withstand almost everything known outside of the actual application of atomic energy itself. In a widely publicized demonstration several years before, a Voisier vault had been cut open by a team of well-trained, well-equipped technicians. It had taken 21 hours for them to breach the wall, and they had no fear of interruption or of making a noise or of setting off the intricate alarms that were built into the safe itself. Not even a Borazon drill could make such an impression on a metal which had been formed under millions of atmospheres of pressure. And yet, the knife had taken that door out in a second, without much effort at all. The crowd that had gathered at the scene of the crime had not been large. The very thought of the knife kept people away from places where he was known to have been. The specter of the knife evoked a fear, a primitive fear, fear of the dark and fear of the unknown, combined with the rational fear of a very real, very tangible danger. And yet there had been a crowd of onlookers. In spite of their fear, it is hard to keep human beings from being curious. It was known that the knife didn't stay around after he had struck, and besides the area was now full of armed men. So the curious came to look and to stare in revulsion at the neat pile of gnawed and bloody bones that had been the night watchman, carefully killed and eaten by the knife before he had opened the vault. Thus curiosity does make fools of us all, and the native hue of caution is crimsoned o'er by the bright red of morbid fascination. Stanton went through the door of the automat restaurant and walked over to the vending wall. The dining room was only about three-quarters full of people. There were plenty of seats available. He fed coins into the proper slots, took his sandwich and milk over to a seat in one corner, and made himself comfortable. He flipped open the newspaper and looked at the front page. And for a moment his brain seemed to freeze. The story itself was straightforward enough. Benkheim kidnappers nabbed. Stan Martin does it again. Series, June 3rd, Interplanetary News Service. The three men and three women who allegedly kidnapped ten-year-old Shmuel Benkheim were brought to justice today through the single-handed efforts of Stanley Martin, famed investigator for Lloyds of London. The boy, held prisoner for more than ten months on a small asteroid, was reported in very good health. According to Lieutenant John Vale of the Planetoid Police, the kidnap gang could not have been taken by direct assault on their hideout because of fear that the boy might be killed. The operation required a carefully planned one-man infiltration of their hideout, he said. Mr. Martin was the man for the job. Labeled the most outrageous kidnapping in history, the affair was conceived as a long-term method of gaining control of Heavy Metals Incorporated, controlled by Moish ben Kayim, the boy's father. The details... But Bart Stanton wasn't interested in the details. After only a glance through the first part of the article, his eyes returned to the picture alongside the article. The line of print beneath it identified the man in the picture as Stanley Martin. But a voice in Bart Stanton's brain said, Not Stan Martin, 
The name is Mart Stanton. And Bartholomew felt a roar of confusion in his mind, because he didn't know who Mart Stanton was, and because the face in the picture was his own. He was walking again. He didn't quite remember how he had left the automat, and he didn't even try to remember. He was trying to remember other things, farther back, before he had... Before he had what? Before the Institute? Before the beginning of the operations? The memories were there, just beyond the grasp of his conscious mind, like the memories of a dream after one has awakened. Each time he tried to reach into the darkness to grasp one of the pieces, it would break up into smaller bits. The patterns were too fragile to withstand the direct probing of his conscious mind. Only the resulting fragments held together long enough to be analyzed. And, while part of his mind probed frantically after the elusive particles of memory, another part of it watched the process with semi-detached amusement. He had always known there were holes in his memory. Always? Don't be silly, pal. But it was disconcerting to find an area that was as riddled as a used machine-gun target. The whole fabric had been punched to bits. No man's memory is completely available at any time. However it is recorded, however completely every bit of data may be recorded during a lifetime, much of it is unavailable because it is incompletely cross-indexed, or in some cases labeled Do Not Scan, or metaphorically, the file drawer may be locked. It may be that, in many cases, if a given bit of data remains unscanned long enough, it fades into illegibility, never reinforced by the scanning process. Sensory data, coming in from the outside world as it does, is probably permanent. But the thought patterns originating within the mind itself... The processes that correlate and cross-index and speculate on and hypothesize about the sensory data, those are much more fragile. A man might glance once through a Latin primer and have every page imprinted indelibly on his recording mechanism and still be unable to make sense of the natura incubito cum puella est. Sometimes a man is aware of the holes in his memory, what was the name of that fellow I met at Eddie's party? Can't remember it for the life of me. At other times a memory may lay dormant and unremembered, leaving no apparent gap, until a tag of some kind brings it up. That girl with the long hair reminds me of Susie Bluegerhugel. My gosh, I haven't thought of her in years. Both factors seem to be operating in Bart Stanton's mind at this time. Incredibly, he had never, in the past year at least, had occasion to try to remember much about his past life. He had known who he was without thinking about it particularly, and the rest of his knowledge, language, history, politics, geography, and so forth, had been readily available for the most part. Ask any educated man to give the product of the primes to 13 and 41, or ask him to give the date of the Norman Conquest, and he can give the answer without having to think of where he learned it, or who taught it to him, or when he got the information. But now the picture and the name in the paper had brought forth a reaction in Stanton's mind, 
and he was trying desperately to bring the information out of oblivion did he have a mother surely but could he remember her yes certainly a pretty gentle rather sad woman he could remember when she had died although he couldn't remember ever having attended the funeral what about his father he could find no memory of his father and at first that bothered him he could remember his mother could almost see her moving around in the apartment where they had lived in 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 denver sure and he could remember the building itself and the block and even mrs forbisher who lived upstairs and the school a great many memories came crowding back but there was no trace of his father and yet oh of course his father had been killed in an accident when martin bart were very young martin bart the name flitted through his mind like a scrap of paper in a high wind but he reached out and grasped it martin bart martin bart mart in bart mart and bart the stanton twins it was curious he thought that he should have forgotten his brother and even more curious that the name of the paper had not brought him instantly to mind martin the cripple martin the boy with the radiation shattered nervous system the boy who had had to stay in a therapy chair all his life because his efferent nerves could not control his body the boy who couldn't speak or rather wouldn't speak because he was ashamed of the gibberish that resulted martin the non-entity the nothing the nobody the one who watched and listened and thought but could do nothing bart stanton stopped suddenly and unfolded the newspaper again under the glow of the street lamp his memory certainly didn't jive with this his eyes ran down the column of type mr martin has in the eighteen months since he came to the belt run up an enviable record both as an insurance investigator and as a police detective although his connection with the planetoid police is necessarily an unofficial one probably not since sherlock holmes has there been such mutual respect and cooperation between the official police and a private investigator there was only one explanation stanton thought martin too had been treated by the institute his memory was still blurry and incomplete but he did suddenly remember that a decision had been made for martin to take the treatment he chuckled a little at the irony of it they hadn't been able to make a superman of martin but they had been able to make a normal and extraordinarily capable man of him now it was bart who was the freak the odd one turn about is fair play he thought but somehow it didn't seem quite fair he crumpled the newspaper dropped it into a nearby waste chute and walked on through the night toward the neurophysical institute interlude you understand mr stanton said the psychiatrist that a great part of martin's trouble is mental as much as physical because of the nature of his ailment he has withdrawn 
pulled himself away from communication with others. If these symptoms had been brought to my attention earlier, the mental disturbance might have been more easily analyzed and treated. "'I'm sorry, doctor,' said Mrs. Stanton. Her manner betrayed weariness and pain. It was so... so difficult. Martin could never talk very well, you know, and he just talked less and less as the years went by. It was so gradual that I never really noticed it. Poor woman, the doctor thought. She's not well herself. She should have married again rather than carry the whole burden alone. Her role as a doting mother hasn't helped either of the boys to overcome the handicaps that were already present. I've tried to do my best for Martin, Mr. Stanton went on unhappily, and so has Bart. When they were younger, Bart used to take him out all the time. They went everywhere together. Of course, I don't expect Bart to do that so much any more. He has his own life to live. He can't take Martin out on dates or things like that. But when he's home, Bart helps me with Martin all the time. I understand, said the doctor. This is no time to tell her that Bartholomew's tests indicate that he has subconsciously resented Martin's presence for a long time. She has enough to worry about. I don't understand, said Mr. Stanton, breaking into sudden tears. I don't understand why Martin should behave this way. Why should he just sit there with his eyes closed and ignore us both? The doctor comforted her in a warmly professional manner. Then, as her tears subsided, he said, We don't understand all of the factors ourselves, Mr. Stanton. Martin's reactions are, I admit, unusual. His behavior doesn't quite follow the pattern that we usually expect from such cases as this. His physical disability has drastically modified the course of his mental development, and at the same time makes it difficult for us to make any analysis of his mental state. Is there anything you can do, doctor? We don't know yet, he said gently. He considered for a moment, then said, Mr. Stanton, I'd like for you to leave both boys here for a few days so that we can perform further tests. That will help us a great deal in getting at the root of Martin's problem. She looked at him with a little surprise. Why, yes, of course, but why should Bart stay? The doctor weighed his words carefully before he spoke. Bart is our control, Mr. Stanton. Since the boys are genetically identical, they should have been a great deal alike in personality if it hadn't been for Martin's accident. In other words, our tests of Bart will tell us what Martin should be like. That way we can tell just how much and in what way Martin deviates from what he should ideally be. Do you understand? Yes, yes, I see. All right, doctor, whatever you say. After Mr. Stanton had left, the psychiatrist sat quietly in his chair and stared thoughtfully at the desktop for several minutes. Then, making his decision, he picked up a small book that lay on his desk and looked up a number in Arlington, Virginia. He punched out the number on his phone, and when the face appeared on the screen, he said, Hello, Sidney. Look, I have a very interesting case out here that I'd like to talk to you about. Do you happen to have a telepath who's strong enough to take a meshing with an insane mind? If my suspicions are correct, I'll need a man with an impregnable sense of identity 
because he's going to get into the weirdest situation I've ever come across. End of part five.